Well, good morning, church. It's good to be together, isn't it? It's a beautiful day, but still we're inside. Get to sing together and fellowship together, come around God's word together. That's a good thing. We get to do that. So we praise God for that. So we're going to be looking at this passage here in Isaiah 53 in a moment. You know, why is it, why is it that when the other person takes a long time, he's slow, but when I take a long time, I'm thorough? <laughs> why is it when the other person does something without being told, he's overstepping his bounds, but when I do it, that's initiative? Why is it when the other person overlooks a rule of etiquette, he's rude, but when I skip a few rules, I'm original. Why is it when the other person pleases the boss, he's kissing up, but when I please the boss, that's cooperation. Why is it when the other person gets ahead, he's getting all the breaks, but when I get ahead, that's the reward for hard work. Why is it when the other person doesn't do it, he's lazy, but when I don't do it, I'm just too busy. Why is it... Why is it that I count the number of items in someone else's cart in a fast checkout lane, but when I have two extra items, that's okay? Why is it that we seem to be an exception to the rule? Interesting, isn't it, that we view others' actions as unacceptable, yet we have a good excuse for our own? When we discover self-excusing evasion and some leader, we demand an honest reckoning, but do we require the same unrelenting honesty of ourselves? An old Puritan said that one of the devil's strategies, one of the devil's strategies to get us to think that we are an exception. Our passage for this morning reminds us that all of us have sinned without exception. And what Jesus did, he did for all of us. And as we continue in our sermon series, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to that which is probably the most well-known chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. It's the fourth and final servant passage as we continue in our study through the book of Isaiah on why we are here as we look at selected passages from Isaiah and this chapter I was not going to miss. This is the, the best single chapter perhaps in the Bible explaining what happened on the cross. Charles Spurgeon says this about Isaiah 53. He says, it's the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. We have the gospel given to us 688 years before Jesus experienced this in real time. Haddon Robinson, Haddon Robinson called Isaiah 53 the Mount Everest passage of the Bible. The Mount Everest passage of the Bible. Now, I never hiked Mount Everest, nor do I have any plans to. It's not on my bucket list. Maybe you have. Good for you. I, I didn't even, I didn't even um, hike Mount Contadin while I was in Maine, which is well known for its strenuous hike that's nothing short of spectacular, I am told, when a, when a hiker finally reaches the summit. See, Mount Major is more my speed. Or maybe Locks Hill. <laughs> maybe my backyard. No, 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 I do better than that. Whether hiking, though, Mount Everest or Mount Contadin or Mount Major, you don't want to be fooled by false peaks. 
You know, those places where you stop, you take in the wonder of it all, and you say, good enough for me, let's head back down. Now, because when you can push through to reach the highest peak and the best view of all at the top, there is something glorious and almost indescribable. Breathtaking is more like it. We get to the peak of Isaiah. It's the pinnacle of the servant passages. The height reaches much higher than the summit of Mount Major, Mount Katahdin, or even Mount Everest. No one will ever scale these heights. The view from here in Isaiah chapter 53, if we were able to t- fully take it in, would leave us breathless, full of, full of wonder, full of awe. All right, Isaiah chapter 53, and as we come to chapter 53, you know, it's almost as as if we should remove our shoes, for we're on holy ground. It's a solemn passage, and I want us to feel what's written here. I want us to experience it. The passage is, is aimed at the heart, and there are five stanzas of three verses each in this final servant passage which really begins in chapter 52. There is a very unfortunate chapter break that we have here. Really 52, 13 through 15 should be part of chapter 53. No one cared to ask me my opinion on that and I get that. But it belongs there. It belongs here. Now the first stanza then begins in 52 verse 13. And while there's a a single thread that runs through all of this, each stanza of three verses provides us with a lesson. All right? So the first lesson here is in our first stanza is before Jesus we are left in speechless wonder. Before Jesus we are left in speechless wonder. So pick it up, chapter 52 now, verse uh, 13. It says, see or behold my servant. We've seen that in each of the servant passages. See see or behold my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Now when it says act wisely there, it means to be successful. It means to achieve the purpose you intended. The servant of the Lord acted wisely for his reason for coming was successful. Now, at face value, it didn't look successful. We, could never, we would never equate success with what we read here in verse 14, chapter 52. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, right? Jesus' crucifixion is what it's talking about here. It doesn't sound like success, though, when you read it. It says of the servant that the people were appalled at him. And that word appalled uh, was used to describe a city that was invaded and destroyed to nothing and was left to rubble. It is, it is to be shattered. That word appalled is applied to Jesus here at the cross and he was repulsive to look at. I mean, it's so, it, it looks so bad you'd want to vomit. His appearance... By the beatings, was so disfigured that it doesn't even look human anymore. Can you imagine? How is that success? 
How does suffering accomplish anything good? I mean, we, we, might, we might be inclined to say, you know, if God loves me, why is there suffering in my life? Because we kind of see that hard times and God's love, they're incompatible. No, they're compatible. I mean, it's so counterintuitive. I, I get that. But just as the case with Jesus, that suffering was a means to an end, so it is in our lives. We can act wisely in the midst of difficult times because we know it has a purpose. We can do the right things in order to accomplish the purpose God has for us in the midst of whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever difficulty we're going through right now. Because what God has for all of us, listen, it will not fail. He will accomplish its purpose. And for here, in the case in front of us of the Messiah, what appeared to be defeat was victory in the end. Look at the last part of verse 13 again. It tells us he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. See, more appalling and more shocking than the disfigurement would be the surpassing greatness of the servant. You see, the, the suffering servant is not to be pitied, but worshipped. It's, it's shocking to consider that for all of us that our guilt can be removed by one man who gave up his life. And that's what it gets to in verse 15. It says, so will he sprinkle many nations. And I just want to stop there for a second. Not everyone agrees with this, but I really think this is talking about on the day of atonement that the priest that would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, well, Jesus, our priest, Jesus, our sacrifice, would offer himself to be the cleansing of sins. He will sprinkle many nations, cleanse many nations, many peoples. Now notice what it says next here. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. You see, there will be a day for everyone which will all make sense. Doesn't mean everybody will be saved. But does mean that every person will bend the knee to the exalted Jesus and confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. There will be a day when that happens without exception. When old time comedian W.C. Fields came to the final illness of his life, he was in the hospital and the doctors, they didn't give him much hope to even live. One of his friends who had known him for years and had seen W.C. Fields' disdain for religion and, and everything spiritual, he, this friend walked into the hospital room and when he did, he stopped in his tracks as before his eyes, he saw W.C. Fields reading the Bible. His friend in utter amazement said, W.C., what in the world are you doing? I never knew you to be a religious man. And W.C. Fields replied, I'm looking for a loophole. I'm looking for a loophole. You're looking for a loophole? Oh, maybe it won't be like that at all. Oh, no, no, that can't be saying that. You're looking for a loophole? No, no. All people will shut their mouths as they stand before Jesus, the exalted one someday, without exception. You know, some people think, and I've even heard them say, you know, when I, when I get be stand before Jesus, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say that, and I got something to ask him about over here. And no, you won't. No, you won't. Oh, I'm going to give him this excuse. No, you won't. You'll have nothing to say. Because before him, all are left in speechless wonder. 
All right, that's the first lesson. Let me give you the second lesson. Suffering servant, the Messiah, wasn't impressive in ways that matter to us. Look at the next stanza now, chapter 53, verse 1. Comes out and asks, who has believed our message? Well, so few did, right? I mean, some of those who even witnessed his miracles and heard him preach didn't understand the message. They didn't understand why he came. He didn't come in the way that they would have expected the Messiah to come, right? That's what verse 2 gets at. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, which, which is figurative language. It describes an unwanted shoot or sprout. We might call it a sucker that springs up from the exposed root of a tree. And what would the gardener do with that sprout? He'd snip it. He'd cut it off as soon as possible because it would just take water and nutrients from the tree. He'd get rid of it. That's the unexpected nature of Jesus' ministry. That's how he came. Really not worth much. From our perspective, there wasn't a lot of splash. He didn't come as, as would be expected of a deliverer. He was not impressive and what counts with us for a strong leader, we want a strong leader to be forceful and, and attractive and, and lots of charisma and big personalities that draw people to themselves and convince people to do what they want. We want those kind of leaders. Well, verse 2 goes on. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now the point here isn't whether the suffering servant, the Messiah, was good looking. That's not the point. But that what we would look for as indicators of success were not found in Jesus. No impressive resume, not a lot of money, no list of degrees next to his name, utterly unimpressive. He was ordinary. Even his name, Jesus, was an ordinary name. We see here the ordinariness of the servants. That's hard because appearances matter to us, right? In a survey a few years ago, it was concluded that in all elements of the workplace, from hiring to politics to promotions, looks matter and they matter hard. In the survey, 57% of hiring managers believe an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have a harder time getting hired. 68% of hiring managers believe that once hired, looks will affect the way managers rate an employee's job performance. Now get this, 64% of hiring managers said they believe companies should be allowed to hire people based on looks. And you go, seriously? Ha, that's terrible. How often do we do the same? How often do we do the same? We make judgments by what we see by outward appearances. And in the church today, we can look for the same thing. Impress me. We want flashy. We're drawn to the spectacular, the showy, the big personality with lots of charisma. We can get the impression, we can get the impression there's no place in the church for ordinary me. 
Listen, God uses ordinary people. That's why he made so many of us, right? God often deals with us through ordinariness. Can you accept that? I mean, are you, are you waiting for some impressive way, some miracle to take place in your life that automatically transforms you? That isn't how God usually works. I mean, don't get me wrong. He works in a supernatural way in our lives. I'm not saying that. But sometimes we kind of just sit back and go, do some miracle in me, God. Transform me. Snap your fingers. Let's make this happen. I mean, he can work in some extraordinary way like that. I saw her in, I saw her in my own life when I, when I finally got my act together and I, and I surrendered to the Lord, I received him as Lord of my life, that some dramatic things happened in my life at that time. But you know what? He didn't dramatically change all of my old habits. He didn't. And I remember fighting disappointments. I mean, I had heard those testimonies growing up of dramatic change that I stumbled over the ordinary. I even stumbled over how ordinary Christians can be. (laughs) Don't get turned off by how unimpressive Christians can be. From the things that matter to us, you wouldn't have been that impressed with Jesus. The truth is that what was just said here about this unimpressive appearance was all for us, which leads us to the third stanza. It leads us to lesson three, what Jesus did, he did for all of us. What Jesus did, he did for all of us. We come to the heart of the message. Look with me, verse four. Chapter 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, spiritually healed. Now, folks, this is language of substitution. Do you see it there? He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He did what he did for all of us. But the key to understanding what is said here, the key to understanding the gospel, it rests on our understanding of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. A big word for that is vicarious. Vicarious. That Jesus took my place, my punishment, my benefit, your benefit. Another big word that theologians call imputation. The crediting of Christ's righteousness uh, uh, to us through faith. Here's the point. It isn't enough. It isn't enough to say, yes, yes, I know, I know, Jesus died. Your story of salvation must include, yes, he died for me in my place. We must know that we need a substitute. Otherwise, what was the point? That you need someone to stand in for you. You might have heard of the uh, Manhattan Project that was a research and development undertaking during World War II that produced the first nuclear weapons. 
And one of the physicists who took part in the Manhattan Project was a Canadian named uh, uh, Louis Slotin. Louis Slotin. Louis Slotin performed experiments with uranium and plutonium cores to determine their critical mass value. On May 21st, 1946, he was experimenting to find how long it would take for uranium to be triggered into an unstoppable reaction. And he was doing that by pushing two hemispheres of uranium together and then pulling them apart with a tool, a, a screwdriver really, at the last moment. Because you wouldn't dare put your hands in there. It would be lethal. Well, on this particular day, that tool that he had to separate them slipped. The two hemispheres came together. And, the, and, the, and it said the room filled with a bluish haze. Well, the physicist knowingly reached with his bare hands grabbed the two hemispheres and pulled them apart and this stopped the chain reaction. His efforts saved seven others in that room, but he died nine days later in agony. Over 2,000 years ago, the Son of the living God walked directly into sin's most concentrated radiation. He allowed himself to be, to be touched by its curse and he let it take his life. By that act, he broke the chain reaction, the chain reaction of sin. He paid the penalty on our behalf. He took our place. Sinless substitute took our punishment in our place. Because all of us need a Savior without exception. Why? Verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all? Is that what it's, All of us? But I'm a churchgoer. I've really tried to treat others as I would want them to treat me. You might be thinking, I've been really nailing it lately. All of us, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. In a devotional blog, Sean Thomas talks about a video that he watched on social media of a guy wrestling a sheep out of a big ditch. In this video, the ditch, it was obviously meant to act as a kind of fence to keep the, shield, uh, keep the sheep in the field. Well, this sheep had found its way into this ditch and it couldn't get out. Well, in this video, this man was pushing and he was wrestling for quite some time to get that sheep out of the ditch. And finally, after some, some exhausting effort, he pushed the sheep out of the ditch and he set him free to go back into the pasture. Do <laughs> you know what happened next? <laughs> You're a smart group. Only a few minutes later, that same sheep leaves the pasture, runs down about 15 feet and jumps right back into the same ditch again. And blogger Sean Thomas says, I was busted out laughing and I thought, unbelievable, what in the world is anything more foolish than a sheep? 
Good thing we never do that. Good thing we as people claiming to be smarter than sheep would never return to the ditch we had just been rescued from. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. You see, being described as a sheep is not a flattering term. But it's an accurate picture though, isn't it? All of us are like sheep. All have sinned. Collective problem of the human race. We are all in the same boat. It isn't that others are really bad sinners, but we're not. It's not our works. In Rembrandt's painting, The Raising of the Cross, which is a painting of Jesus' crucifixion. In this painting, he not only portrays Jesus, but he includes himself in the scene. He paints himself into the picture as one of the men in this crucifixion, as one of the men crucifying the Lord. You see, whether we want to admit it or not, if we were present at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, we might have been standing there shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Now your first reaction to my saying that might be, not me. Never. You sure about that? See, for us to feel, for us to feel the full weight of what Jesus did for all of us, we must first acknowledge we are part of all who have sinned without exception. We cannot appreciate fully that what Jesus did, he did for all of us until we grasp that we are included in the all of us who have sinned. Once we get there, then we are ready to receive what Jesus did. He did for all of us. Yes, you. Yes, me. All right, fourth lesson. Let me get the fourth lesson here. And, I, and I'm going to hit these last two lessons rather quickly. The fourth lesson is this. In the midst of injustice, we can entrust and trust ourselves to God. In the midst of injustice, we can entrust ourselves to God. You see, Jesus was a victim of the greatest injustice of all. But he chose not to fight back. It wasn't as if he was just caught up in this web of lies that were out of his control and he couldn't do anything about it. No, in the midst of this miscarriage of injustice, he exercised complete control. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before a shear is his silence. So he did not open his mouth. And then verse 9 tells us there wasn't any deceit in his mouth. Now this is not saying there would never be a place or time to defend ourselves when falsely accused. That just goes beyond my purposes today so I'm not going to go down that road. You've got to work that out. But the point is, really what Peter says in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he puts it right out there and he says, we're to follow Jesus' example. It says, when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It begs the question, is there a situation right now in your life that invites retaliation. Oh, I'm going to get them back. Might not be as obvious, but I'll get them back. Is there, is there an injustice 
right now in your life that just has you wanting to fight back, get even, make someone pay. It isn't a sign of weakness to remain silent, by the way. It isn't a sign that you lack backbone or you lack strength. Actually, to have that strength under control is the greater virtue. There are times, right, when you simply must leave it with God. Because he knows what it's like to be a victim of injustice. He can identify with the one wrongly accused. He can identify with the weak and victims of abuse, the oppressed, the mistreated. And in the day and age in which we live in, it looks like wrong people win and those who do right lose. We must trust and trust all of that to God who judges justly. All right, let me give you the fifth lesson. There is no greater satisfaction than seeing lives saved. There's no greater satisfaction than seeing lives saved. Now, I don't have time to dig into this last stanza here, verses 10 through 12, but let me pull out the gist of what this is getting at, and I'll share a couple of verses here. You see, this chapter, what we've been looking at here this morning, it's not a description of some tragic story. It's not a retelling of some accident in history in which a good person was the wrong place at the wrong time. You see, the humiliation and death of Jesus was not merely some human plot. It was a divine plan. And you know that no other religion has at its heart the humiliation of its God? And Isaiah 53 answers the most important question ever asked. It's the most important question ever asked is answered right here. What is the question? See, this question, it is more important than who's going to win the next election. It is more important than who you're going to marry and where your career is taking you and all the other things we think are the biggest questions in the world. No, no, this is more important question than that. Question 53 answers is, how can a sinner be made right with God so as to escape eternal punishment and live in heaven? There's no more important question than that. And this one chapter we see the reason why Jesus must suffer. We see the results of his suffering. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And what does Jesus think of all this? Look at verse 12. After the suffering of his soul, He'll see the light of life. He'll see the, the resurrection. He'll live again. He will see the light of life. Now get this. And be satisfied. It is finished. The suffering servant is a satisfied servant. For his life given up, then raised up, a result in many others being redeemed, being saved, being justified. And you know, when it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Everyone asks, what's the joy there? Well, my take on that, on what the joy is, I believe it's referring not to his return to the joy of heaven. He already had that. But the joy of all those who will be saved because of the sacrifice on the cross. And as Jesus stands back, and he looks at the divine strategy of the price he paid for its success, he is satisfied. 
Anguish was not his final emotional experience. His heart was glad, satisfied, pleased. Why? It is finished. His offering for sin and guilt was complete. And now, my mind's eye, I go here. And now, every time someone turns from not knowing Christ to receiving his gift of salvation, sheer pleasure floods his heart. Each time Jesus' righteousness is counted to an ungodly person, he enjoys it. Do you think of Jesus that way? He enjoys it. Enjoying the satisfaction of one who admits their need of him and trusts in him for salvation. And I ask, Brian, is your greatest satisfaction seeing lives saved? Church of Living Hope, is your greatest satisfaction seeing lives saved? That's a task for all of us. That's why we're here. All right. What do we do now with what we looked at this morning? Over the years, even among the Jews, people don't want to believe that this chapter is about the Messiah, about Jesus. Their logic goes something like this. Since this was written almost 700 years prior to Jesus' coming, no one could predict this so accurately. Then the servant here must be something else. It must be the nation Israel and all the suffering they had to endure. This suffering can't refer to Israel. The passage speaks of one who suffered as doing so vicariously for the benefit of someone else. The nation Israel would never make such a claim. Nor did they suffer voluntarily as this passage describes. Yeah, 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 I want to be persecuted. Give it to me. Many find it hard to believe that a deliverer, the Messiah, would have to suffer like this. And so they dismiss this as talking about Jesus. No, undoubtedly, this is speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. You see, the real problem is this. To accept this as being about Jesus means something. You have to do something with this. It's kind of what Mark Twain's often quoted line, right? It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand. <laughs> I don't want, no, I don't want this. I accept this, then I got to do something with my life. No, I'd rather not. See, because to read what's here, it's compelling. If it's for all of us, then we have to admit our sin, and, and we'd rather kind of, you know, make an excuse rather than do that. As Corey Ten Boom put it, the blood of Jesus never cleansed an excuse. Can you admit then? I don't know where you're at today. Can you admit? For all of us have sinned means you. Okay? Then you're ready to accept Jesus as your substitute that what Jesus did, he did for you in your place. Have you, done, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ, transferred trust of yourself to trusting Jesus? Have you made that step? It's not just, oh yeah, 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 Jesus died. He died for me in my place on the cross. He took my punishment. It's finished. Have you done that? Listen, if you haven't done that, don't walk out of here without resolving that. Why go on? You're weak. No, stop. Stop first. Make this right.
Make this right. I'd love to talk to you. And if you don't talk to me, I can hook you up with someone else in the church so I can talk with you. I'd love to talk with you. So after we sing our final song, I'm just going to hang over there. Come talk with me. I'd love to talk to you. Well, I'll get someone else to talk with you. Have you done that? Now you say, yeah, no, no, I've done it. I've done that. I put my trust in Jesus Christ. But you know what? My heart's rather cool right now. I'm kind of distant from the Lord. I've I've even kind of walked away from all that stuff. What do I do? Come back to Isaiah 53. Come back to the gospel because you never outgrow your need for the gospel. Never. Scott McKnight in his book, The Jesus Creed, he says this. He says, yellow is not my favorite color, but now that I know the story of Vincent van Gogh, I've come to value yellow differently. This famous Dutch painter sadly tossed away the truth imparted to him in his Christian home and he sank into depression and destruction. But by the grace of God, as he later began to embrace the truth again, his life took on hope and he gave that hope color. The best kept secret, he says, of Van Gogh's life is that the truth he was discovering is seen in the gradual increase of the presence of the color yellow in his paintings. Yellow evoked for him the hope and warmth of the truth of God's love. In one of his depressive times, we still kind of was coming back to the Lord, but he still kind of walked away. His scene in his famous The Starry Night, one finds a yellow sun and a yellow swirling stars because Van Gogh thought truth was present only in nature. Sadly, the church, which is in that painting, it stands tall in that painting, should be the house of truth and hope. It's the only item in his painting that shows no traces of yellow. That's how we saw the church. He then says, but by the time he painted the raising of Lazarus, his life was on the men. He had taken a turn and he began to face the truth about himself. And the entire picture, blindingly, bathed in yellow. In fact, Van Gogh put his own face on Lazarus to express his own hope in the resurrection. Yellow tells the whole story. Life can begin all over again because of the magnitude of God's love. And each of us, whether they're actual yellows or metaphorical yellows, can begin to paint our lives with a fresh hope of a new beginning. Distant from God right now? Kind of drifted? Lost your first love for the Lord? What do you do? Come back to the gospel. Don't ever leave it. Because we never outgrow our need for this gospel. Let it wash over you in a fresh way this morning. Let's pray. God, I don't know where where everyone's at this morning. Only you know that. If there's a little nudging that needs to be done and a little step that needs to be taken, really a big step, I pray that step will be taken this morning as you work in their hearts. We're going to sing, Jesus, Messiah. Speaks of your sacrifice. Speaks of what you did in our place. For those that have not taken this step, may it grip them like never before. And for those who have, may it warm their hearts to the magnitude of your love and what it is that you've done for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.